and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Ben Cisneros, a training solicitor at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined by my colleague Donna Bartley, a senior associate at the firm. I'm delighted to say that we're joined today by two special guests, Nikki Dryden and Cara O'Donovan. Nikki is a sports and human rights lawyer who works as an associate at the Australian Human Rights Institute and has recently been appointed as a board member of the Centre for Sport and Human Rights in Switzerland. Nikki is a double Olympian, having competed for Canada in swimming at two consecutive Olympics and is currently undertaking a PhD focusing on the intersection of human rights and sport in the Olympic movement. Welcome, Nikki. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. Uh, Our second guest, Cara, is a co-founder of Global Athlete, an independent athlete-led organization representing the interests of athletes globally. She's also an ambassador for the charity Equity Sport and is a former kickboxing world champion. Thank you, Cara, for accepting our invitation. Thanks, Ben. I'm delighted to be on the podcast. Well, in this episode, we'll be discussing Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter and the International Olympic Committee's approach to athletes' freedom of expression and right to protest ahead of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. With the Games just days away, this has been and still is a huge talking point that is likely to generate headlines over the coming fortnight. And if you haven't already, you might be interested to listen to our earlier episode on Rule 50 with human rights lawyer Brendan Schwab and US athlete Tiana Bartoletta. But much has changed since then. Rule 50.2 of the Olympic Charter states that no kind of demonstration or political, religious or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues or other areas. On its face, this amounts to a blanket ban on any form of demonstration or protest of a political, religious or racial nature. Indeed, that is the way it's been historically interpreted by the IOC. Its stated aims are to preserve the political neutrality of Olympic sport and the focus on the celebration of sporting performance. This rule has been subjected to no fewer than three sets of guidelines in the space of the past 18 months, setting out exactly when athletes may or may not demonstrate, protest or express their views and explaining what will or will not happen to them if they do. In January 2020, the IOC guidelines made clear that any form of protest or demonstration at Olympic venues, including on the field of play, in the Olympic village, during medal ceremonies and during the opening and closing ceremonies, was not allowed. Perhaps driven by the social changes the world has seen over the past year, particularly following the death of George Floyd, the IOC came under renewed pressure to reconsider its position. And two sets of guidelines and a somewhat dubious athlete questionnaire later, it's been conceded that athletes may express their views on the field of play prior to the start of competition under certain conditions. However, the IOC also seems to have abandoned the distinction between expressing one's views and demonstrating or protesting. It now seems that even simply expressing an opinion or belief will not be permitted during ceremonies, competition or in the Olympic village. This is an issue that refuses to go away and which, along with the many issues relating to COVID-19, threatens to overshadow the Games. I think that's quite enough from me. So, Nikki, if I could start with you, where do you stand on Rule 50.2 and the way it's set to be applied in Tokyo? Yeah, I think what's very disappointing is that the IOC has really failed to understand that this is a human rights issue. Um, none of their language around the guidelines, none of their language, even in the consultations with athletes, use human rights language. And that's what's the most disappointing because they really failed and missed the mark completely. I really want to talk about freedom of expression. You know, they want to talk about a rule that they have. And really, you know, freedom of expression is one of the most important human rights there is because it enables you to then express other human rights. So so that my big concern really is about the way it's been framed by the International Olympic Committee and that they've really missed the mark, uh, which is disappointing because, um, 
you know, they have made some, some, some progress towards human rights strategy. And this is their first big test and they failed. And Cara, what about you? Where do you stand? Well, I think I'd echo everything that Nikki has just said there. Uh, I totally disagree with the rule. Um, and I, I guess I always have. I think fundamentally it's a freedom of expression issue that is, as Nikki mentioned, a really important human right. And I just cannot understand why any sports organization can think that they have the right to just change that. Um, so these are sports reels that we're talking about and they shouldn't even have any kind of, they shouldn't even be in the same conversation as human rights issues. We can't just change the UN Declaration of Human Rights because a sports organization thinks it's convenient. So I totally disagree with it. Uh, and I'm, I suppose we will talk about it in a bit more detail. I'm not at all impressed with the, the changes that they allege they've made. Well, that's certainly something we'll, we'll come on to. Donna, was there anything you wanted to add on, on the sort of overarching perspective? Um, I think I would just echo what Nikki and Cara have said to say that it, it, it's it's failed to, to view this as a freedom of expression issue. The, the, the latest um, guideline talks about extending further opportunities for freedom of expression, but these are things that, that should just be guaranteed. So, um, yeah, I'm sure we'll come on to, to some more of the specifics, but I would certainly echo what Cara and Nikki have said. Yeah. One of the main ways in which the IOC has come to these latest guidelines, which is something we, we will discuss in a bit more detail, it is via um, consultation with athletes. And that's another thing that they've sort of stressed in, in the communications recently. Cara, maybe if I come to you first on this, do you think that this athlete consultation adds any credibility to their position? Well, I guess, first of all, it, it's a really difficult one to, to speak on because as athletes and as athlete groups, it's something we've been crying out for for quite a long time to have more consultation and to have a bigger voice. And so I kind of feel that the Olympics have used this and said, well, we're going to put this on the athletes here. Um, so no, I, I don't agree with the consultation process. I think it's been dragged out over the past year because, as you mentioned already, they've come under so much pressure around this rule. And I feel that the survey process, I mean, from a global athlete point of view, we've had it independently reviewed. It doesn't cut it really. It's flawed. It's leading. You know, that's, I suppose, a, a one conversation. But again, it comes back down to a very, very simple issue. It's a human rights issue. A survey shouldn't be anywhere near it. It shouldn't decide whether we're going to give you your human rights or we're not going to give you your human rights. So I think the consultation process, as well as it being flawed, it wasn't really appropriate to use it in this issue. And I kind of feel a little bit, uh, it's a difficult one because, you know, we can't just, I suppose when we're crying out for athlete consultation and athlete voice, and then we criticize the one time that they really do a big exercise on this, it's a tricky one. But I suppose the bottom line is it's not appropriate to use surveys in this particular instance, I don't think. Nikki, would you agree with that? Yeah, Kara summed it up very well. I think that it is difficult because it is something that the IOC Athletes Commission is starting to gain more power and a voice within the Olympic, within the International Olympic Committee itself. And that's a wonderful thing. But what I fear is that this was an exercise in potentially using the athlete voice against us. Kara mentioned the leading questions. I did take the survey as a retired Olympian. I was um, sent a link to take the survey. I took the survey, I screenshotted every question, um, I analyzed it as I was going. And, you know, without providing context before you take a survey like that, you know, and then having leading questions, of course, athletes are going to say that they would be offended, 
you know, if someone did something offensive. I mean, that's kind of the type of question that was there, uh, which is just like absurd. Um, there was absolutely no human rights language or education that went along with this survey. So if you don't know what your rights are, how are you going to know how to answer these types of questions? And then even in the way it was summarized, I, I actually did go through all the survey results. And, you know, the IOC led with what was answers that, you know, supported their rule. But they failed to um, summarize other questions that actually said that 63% of athletes would exercise their freedom of expression or would not be opposed to other athletes doing so. 63% when they don't even know really the rules, they don't really know what the consequences are. That's a really high number. And I'm quite happy with that number. The only other thing I'd say about the, the consultation process in terms of the athletes that were consulted, we saw really high numbers of athletes from China and Russia participating but the reflection was that they weren't Olympians. And I'm not saying only Olympians should have taken the survey. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of people that weren't Olympians until this summer um, or this, you know, coming up in Tokyo that, you know, potentially are in that elite athlete group. But in China, only 29% of the athletes surveyed were Olympians. 71% were elite athletes. I mean, who are these people that are actually being asked questions that you know, really are reflective and important on the Olympic athlete, you know, as opposed to other top athletes that might be in the country. So, um, yeah, not a good exercise in stakeholder consultations. I think that there's some really important points. And, and Donna, I'd just like to pick up on something Cara said with you. And I wonder if, if, if you have a, a take on it about the appropriateness of using a survey in this context, because ultimately, a lot of the issues around uh, freedom of expression, protesting at the Olympics are to do with sort of the rights of minorities, ultimately, and is using a, a survey, which is, you know, inherently to do with seeking a majority or, or seeking the popular opinion. Is that sort of compatible with the issue of human rights? Yeah, well, well, that's exactly what I was going to say, that um, a survey... <laughs> Sorry for stealing your point. <laughs> no, absolutely. absolutely. It's, it, a survey in this sort of... Um, circumstances just seems totally inappropriate because when you look at the ways in which these freedom of expression has been used and arguably protests that have taken place that that's all it's very frequently been about looking at protecting marginalized groups and and, and minorities and and how you can hope to get those views from a survey i just i just don't know and and i don't i don't have confidence that those voices will be protected um, by the results of a survey yeah sorry one more thing i think um to to jump on what donna said is that i don't necessarily know that the survey was anonymous you know there's probably ways to figure out who was responding um, you know, a unique ID was sent to me. I'm not totally, I don't know if I would feel super safe if I was an athlete from Ethiopia, from a minority group protesting something. I don't know that I would feel totally safe in answering that. So um, it's one thing for a retired athlete. I have all the privilege in the world to be able to voice my opinion, but current athletes may not have felt that safe. Moving moving on to the detail of, of the rules. Um, we mentioned at the outset that the primary aim of the rule is about preserving um, political neutrality. If, if an athlete at Tokyo was to take the knee, for example, or, or to, to show solidarity with the LGBT plus community on the podium, which is you know apparently not allowed, is this something that would be a breach of Rule 50.2? Or is there scope for saying these things aren't political protests? Is, is the rule really trying to capture these sorts of expressions? Nikki, maybe I could come to you with that first. Well, I would argue no. So I would say that, that those things are totally fine and they fit within Rule 50.2 as it exists. I think part of the problem, though, is Rule 50.2 and the consequences of Rule 50.2 are totally vague. And we actually don't know. 
And everyone that's done something before has been treated differently. In Australia, we have Kathy Freeman, who ran with the Aboriginal flag and the Australian flag around her neck after winning a Sydney Olympic gold medal. You know, 12 years later in London, an Aboriginal boxer from Australia wore an Aboriginal t-shirt in the ring in warm-up, and he was publicly shamed by the Australian Olympic Committee. So two Aboriginal athletes both treated differently. Kathy had been treated badly previous to that, but because the way the Olympic Committee interacted with their behavior. So I think that, you know, we just really don't know in that sense, you know, how it's going to unfold. But my first argument would definitely be all of those things are totally okay. But is it it your understanding that the IOC has a differing view? Well, I don't know, because other people have done it and and they haven't been penalized. So we actually don't know what a Rule 50.2 violation is. We kind of think that maybe what, you know, Smith and Carlos did is, but Kathy Freeman, you know, wore an Aboriginal flag. Nothing happened to her. Athletes cross themselves. I mean, I would love to count how many times an athlete crosses themselves before they enter the field of play in an international competition. I mean, if we counted how many times at the World Cup, I mean, we would we wouldn't we would run out of numbers. Um, so there are constant religious demonstrations that are happening, and nothing really happens. So you know, it's possible that they are interpreting those things the same way I would that they are not political protests or racial propaganda, um, and that in fact they are. You know, those athletes are exercising their human rights to freedom of expression. But if there's this much talk about it and these many guidelines, I think that that that's probably not correct. (laughs) Donna, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I would just say that we also know that there's potentially going to be a different approach between national or international governing bodies and and potentially the IOC. For example, we know that FINA has said, obviously, with the extension of freedom of expression, that is now going to include the field of play. So, for example, um, GB women's football team has said that they will be taking the knee before their matches. But FINA, the international governing body for swimming, has said that they would expect the rules to extend to what they class of their as their field of play so they won't allow any form of protest shall we say uh, to take place on their field of play so I guess we just don't know how it's going to go obviously we know in that situation the IOC wouldn't have a problem with it but FINA would so yeah it will be interesting to see how it plays out and picking up on another potential distinction that you sort of touched on there Donna is whether certain acts or gestures might be construed as a protest or demonstration and some some things not. Where's the line between simply expressing one's view and demonstrating or protesting? Or, or is there a line at all? I don't know if either of you would like to address that. Yeah, well, exactly. It's um, it's impossible. Well, you know, perhaps impossible to, to draw the line. And, and, and so the focus should be about the freedom of expression. And obviously, that's not totally unlimited. There are restrictions in the way that you are allowed to, under uh, international law and, and national laws, express what you have to say. So, um, but yeah, it's very difficult to draw that line. And obviously, it's, it's difficult to say what is just a, expressing your views and what becomes political. Nikki, is there anything you've picked up from the IOC that might indicate where they would draw the line? Well, I thought it was interesting. And this is something that I kind of had missed in my most recent analysis that I did last week. But 
one of the good things that came out of the I, the Athletes Commission consultations was they actually did go back to the IOC and say, hey, we want some guidelines on the due process. How is this actually going to unfold and play out at the Olympics? I didn't think they had responded, but they they did. I, I missed that. And on July 2nd, they issued their third set of gui- or the 15th set of guidelines, if you will. It, it's five pages, but there's really only one page of important information. And they do talk about this disciplinary consequences of, by the IOC and that they will take into account whether the expression constituted advocacy subject to prohibition under international human rights law. I think I know where they got that that language from, some of us, you know, such as hatred that constitutes incitement to violence, etc. So they do actually refer to this idea that um, not all freedom of expression is free, that there are limits. Um, and that if so, so in a way, they actually are saying, if you do one of those things, so let's say the Nazi salute, right, or, you know, a gun to the head, or, you know, something that's quite violent against somebody, that that actually, that they're going to target that. So it was kind of like, I thought, am I actually reading this right? Are they actually acknowledging that, that they're, that they won't penalize people who do the opposite of that? I mean, the fact that I have to read through all the lines, just come out and say it, just come out and say, we, you know, like we support freedom of expression as it is in international human rights law. You know, if there is a problem, it'll be because somebody, you know, violates, you know, international norms, but they didn't do that. Um, but but I, there's something there that I think might give us some insight into how they might behave. Certainly very vague and, and something that, you know, it may only come out in the, in the fullness of time. Although I would note in their initial guidance, they drew a distinction, as I mentioned at the, at the outset, between expressing one's view and gestures such as kneeling, implying that kneeling would be seen as a demonstration or protest. Whereas other things might not be, and that I guess again that just goes back to the to the vagueness point. And Caro, if I could just bring you in, what sort of global athletes' perspective on the the issue of what might count as a, a protest? Is, is there any advice that you're giving to athletes about how they should navigate this issue? Well, I guess we would hope that athletes wouldn't be deterred from you know, following what they believe to be right, whether it's social justice or whatever issue that they may feel that they have to demonstrate, we'd certainly be open to supporting any athlete uh, as best we could if if that was the case. But I, I think from just listening to all of you discuss this in the last couple of minutes, the lack of clarity around any potential punishment, it would lead me to suspect, this is me personally, that they may be reluctant to to punish athletes. Now, I, I could be wrong. I think we're going to see it tested. I, I believe that people will protest and will push this real to the limit. And I suppose we'll see from there. But my absolute view on this is that the Olympics are on the wrong side of history again on this. Um, they're using this rule and, and kind of packaging the whole changes as this great PR piece um, and just hoping it deters athletes. But I'm not sure they're going to be able to enforce whatever punishment they make up as they go along because we still don't really know what that's going to be. And I think if they do, I think, um, and again, I'm no legal expert. You guys will be the legal experts on this. Can it be challenged and uh, will it be ultimately enforced? I'm not so sure. Well, that that question of whether the rules can be challenged is certainly something that um, I'd like to pick up on a little bit later. But just coming back to the to the aims of Rule 50.2, does the stated aim of preserving political neutrality at the Olympics hold any water? Cara, maybe I could come to you with that. Uh, no, <laughs> that's the straight answer. I mean, 
I suppose, in my opinion, the Olympics are the most political organization or sports organization going. I mean, everything about it is just inherently political. So for them to then, you know, we use this rule to, I suppose, pretend or fool us all into thinking that they're this politically neutral organization, it's laughable. I mean, a typical example, why does President Thomas Bach meet heads of states? I mean, if they're not political, he has no business meeting these people. So look, we looked at the past Olympic Games. We've had countries boycotting each other's Olympic Games. We have the US, the Soviet Union and the Cold War. I mean, you could go on and on, really. So I think on, on paper, yes, they say they're politically neutral. But I mean, the reality is is totally different. Nikki, uh, I see you nodding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if the Olympics are not political, then why do we represent our country? You know, I mean, that then don't have a medal ceremony. I mean, the medal ceremony with flags coming down and singing national anthems is the most political thing I can think of. I can't think of any other more profound way to express your nationality and your, you know, what what politics that you represent than than doing that. And again, like in Australia, I'm sorry to go back to it, but the Aboriginal flag in Australia, there's there's two. There's an Aboriginal and a Torres Strait Islander flag. Those are federally recognized flags of Australia. So why cannot those be raised at the Olympics? Someone has made a decision that when an Australian athlete wins the Union Jack flag, I don't know what what it's called, but it's got the Union Jack on it, that shall be raised. So this idea that we are trying to preserve political neutrality is silly. If you are going to prohibit a certain type of freedom of expression, you might be able to have a legitimate purpose. So in Australia, the law is a little bit different than in the United States, something I'm learning. You know, everyone looks to the United States as this beacon of free speech. But even in America, free speech can be curtailed, right? And in Australia, you know, it's sort of this idea that you can have a legitimate purpose behind your law. But if it's not proportional and adapted and appropriate to the situation, then you can't do it. And so, you know, if the IOC has a legitimate purpose, which is trying to, you know, have this magical moment, okay, that's great. But there's other ways for them to do it. And talking about human rights would be the first way to do it. And providing actual guidelines for expressing your your human rights, that would be appropriate. And then people might go, oh, I get it now, because you're saying that the purpose is that we're all trying to promote this universal ideal of oneness or whatever it might be. And the best way to do that is for me to just be who I am on the podium or something like that. I mean, there are, there are ways that you could do it. Um, but just, you know, going under your bed sheets and pretending that it doesn't exist is not the right way to go about it. And so, Donna, would you say that the perhaps that the IOC are somewhat hypocritical when it comes to Rule 50? Yeah, I think so. As, as Cara said, that the IOC can't say that it's completely apolitical in, in certain situations. But it seems obviously when it comes to the athletes that they're not, you know, entitled to express their point of view on things. But I would just add that some of these issues, you know, perhaps ought not to be viewed as political. And I would question whether we want the Olympics to remain neutral on certain issues. So, for example, you know, things like racial injustice, I don't know that it's, it's good enough to be neutral on that issue. It's the sports, sporting events that we've had recently with the Euros and, and, and in football, obviously, they are, you know, saying that it's important to promote racial justice and, you know, have an equal game or however it is they've decided to do that. It's, it's 
not good enough to stay silent or neutral on those issues. So we'd like to see the Olympics do the same thing. We've also seen the NBA in, in America say that they are committed to addressing social injustice. So, you know, those things are, are good for sport and the wider purpose of bringing people together. As Nikki says, you know, you can be, it's important to show you can be who you want to be. And that's what brings people together and, you know, would be a good thing to demonstrate at the Olympics. So in some instances, really, neutrality just doesn't cut it anymore, I don't think. Yeah. And just sorry, just to jump on that. And and Donna, you referred to this earlier as well, is the idea that freedom of expression, as I said, is an enabling right. And the International Olympic Committee, as do all the nation states that attend the Olympics and are part of the Olympic family, Um, They have additional positive obligations under international law um, to provide an opportunity for minorities and women to express their voices and have in the media and in other places. And so this additional obligation actually creates a thing that is, is, you're right, it's not political. This is actually an affirmative obligation that the International Olympic Committee has to allow a special place for women and minorities to be able to speak their voices. So what better place than on the Olympic podium or after a race? I mean, this is exactly what, um, you know, the conventions on the elimination of racial discrimination, the conventions on indigenous peoples, the conventions on, you know, elimination of discrimination against women. That's what all of this is about. It's about affirmative action and creating opportunities and having those additional obligations to create those opportunities for people to speak up. It certainly does seem that the, the IOC are becoming the odd one out when it comes to this issue. Um, Cara, if I could come to you on, on that point about, you know, the, the moment of the athlete, which was was referenced by Nikki and Donna, I think. If you just won a medal at the Olympics, would, would you really be troubled by the fact that one of the other medal winners chose to use their moment to peacefully stand up for something they believe in? And, and do you think that many athletes would be troubled by this? Well, I'd say, first of all, if it, if it was me, absolutely not. It wouldn't make any difference to whether I won an event or I didn't win. You know, if I'm getting my medal, I'm getting my medal. Nobody can really do anything to take that away. And I'd like to think uh, that athletes for the most part, point or you know the most part will be supportive of that obviously not everybody will some people feel that you know this is their moment and you know they might not necessarily agree with the demonstration on the podium beside them but like ultimately it's you know for me personally it's none of my business it's not my business to tell anyone else how they express what they want to express what they want to say and I think that's what the Olympics are doing here they're still telling athletes how and when they can speak and when we look at athletes winning medals and while it is you know, a huge moment to get to the Olympic Games. It's a once in a lifetime, maybe two in a lifetime for some athletes. It's, you know, certainly um, very few people make it there. To win a medal would be even, you know, fewer again. But I think you have to ask yourself as an athlete that, you know, because I want an extra 30 seconds or five minutes of joy of my medal, do I have the right to rewrite human rights? And I don't think anybody, when you look at that objectively, would say yes. I'd li- well, I'd like to hope they wouldn't. So personally, it would make no odds to me. Um, I, and I, I suppose, and, and Nick, you referred to this earlier, you know, you know, having more awareness or education around what human rights are. When I think every athlete is fully aware of that, they might just look at things a little bit more objectively and just think, well, I still have my medal. And if somebody wants to highlight um, a really important, for example, social justice cause beside me, well, that's their human right to do that. Absolutely. We've spoken quite a lot so far about the uncertainty 
Uh, so I'd now like to bring it back to the point about potential disciplinary consequences for athletes and whether these might be challenged. So firstly, is there any real certainty on how an athlete might be sanctioned? I think we've already slightly touched on that um, for breaching Rule 50.2 at Tokyo. And then if disciplinary proceedings were to be brought, do you think that the charges and all the rule itself might be vulnerable to a legal challenge? Nikki, I'll come to you on that one. So I might start with the second part first, um, because I hope so. I mean, this is what I'm planning for. And this is what, you know, there are coalitions and groups and lawyers all ready, um, you know, to go at this um, from a human rights point of view. So, you know, if the IOC wants to to, to go for this, um, we are ready. And we are ready to present the international human rights argument and, you know, the IOC's obligations under international law. They're a member of, they're a, observer member of the United Nations. So they're legally obligated to follow UN treaty. So it's it's pretty straightforward for me in that sense. To your first point about the, the process. So I used to think the process was really implemented through the National Olympic Committee. And I think it still is to an extent, right? So the athlete signs their athlete agreement. In the athlete agreement, they agree to be bound by the Olympic Charter and that's how the IOC actually reaches down into the nation state and takes jurisdiction over individual citizen athletes. And so it's that sort of private legal contract that is kind of going to govern. And so what you're going to have now is the US OPC, the US National Olympic Committee has said, well, we're not going to put that in our athlete agreement. So already we have major problems for the IOC when NBC, the crown jewel of the Olympic movement, decides to air an American athlete doing a racial or social justice protest. They are not going to be disciplined by the USOPC. So what is the IOC going to do? I don't know. Now, I used to think it was very much NOC specific to the IOC in that sort of relationship. But as Donna mentioned, FINA's recent coming out saying, no, we control the field of play, and that includes the pool deck. My fear in that sense is that somebody does something and FINA's executive committee says, well, you can't race in the next race. The gun goes off and the race is gone and that athlete is standing on the pool deck. There will be no due process in that hypothetical. So I really want to make sure athletes understand that timing is everything here. There are people out there to help you. Reach out to Kara or myself or Donna or Ben, um, and we will connect you to the right people. We can help you talk through this in terms of timing, um, because I think it is very unclear. And there are risks, um, risks that because the due process is not going to be followed and there's not much we can do after the fact if you're just kept out of out of your competition. So I think that's something it's really important to get that message out. The timing of this will be really important, especially because we don't know it. You know, the fact that it's going to be different for every athlete from every country and every sport is just I mean, that's, an, that's a disaster. It's an embarrassment. Just finally, if I may just add, like we are a couple of days away from the opening ceremony in Tokyo. 2020 and we still have this huge lack of clarity of as to what the punishments are going to be if any will it differ from sport to sport from athlete to athlete from you know each country and that is just simply not good enough I mean the rule itself is ridiculous but when we have this rule and they've done this consultation process and they've had all of these months to come up with it and that they still can't even decide what exactly the next steps are going to be it's outrageous from the Olympics. It's just not good enough. And, and they really, you know, it's just need to get their acts together. They have better detailed guidelines if you make a COVID breach. 
So if you breach the COVID protocols, like not wearing a mask or not following guidance from a, a COVID officer, they have more detailed guidelines on how the discipline will unfold than they do on this issue. So, I mean, that to me says it all, that they've spent more time thinking about somebody not wearing a mask, which is important, don't get me wrong, than they have about this issue that athletes have have been raising with them for decades. And do you think that lack of clarity around the due process in itself could give rise to a legal challenge, perhaps? Yes, for sure. Um, So, you know, one of the things that sport and human rights movement have been spending a lot of time on and talking about is this idea of remedy. What is the grievance mechanism that is in place for a particular sport dispute or a human rights abuse that unfolds, whether it's sexual abuse or freedom of expression or, you know, some, some, something else, a, a right to work. Um, these are all things that have to have a remedy. There has to be a process for aggrieving somebody who's lost their human rights or had them abused or not protected or respected. And so this is quite front and center. This is something the IOC knows about. They've gone through their human rights strategic framework, so they should know about remedy and remedial action. And this is also something that's required under international standards. So, so yes, for sure. Threats and innuendos saying we're going to take your medals away, erase you from the record books and take all the money we gave you back. You know, that's not due process. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, then, I'd just like to come to each of you and ask what your perhaps your expectations and your hopes for Tokyo are with respect to, to Rule 50? What, what, what do you expect is going to happen and what do you hope is going to happen? And Cara, I'll come to you first. Well, I, I guess, I suppose the, these games are happening in, and I hate to use this phrase because it's been used so much, but it is unprecedented. And I think there's just so much other stuff between coronavirus and everything just around these games. But if we, I suppose, look specifically to this rule, you can see the unrest from a lot of athletes about it. So I definitely think we're going to see some form of athlete protest and demonstration in the areas that they have been told that they can't do it. Um, So I suppose if that happens, my hope is that athletes will be as well informed as they can be about I suppose their rights and that they'll know where the supports are to go. And, um, and I just, I also hope that the Olympics, I'm not confident on this, but I do hope the Olympics, maybe the penny will drop and they'll realize that they want to be on the right side of history and they'll do the right things and allow athletes their, their right to freedom of expression. Ricky, what about you? I would, I would echo that. I, I really hope that the IOC, um, understands the consequences of, of getting this wrong. Um, and that they will be on the wrong side of history, um, that it will create way more attention. You know, if they want to brush, if they want to keep this quiet, the last thing on earth they should do um, is discipline an athlete for making a social or racial justice um, demonstration. So um, I'm really hopeful that the IOC will see the error of their ways and come to the light. Um, I definitely I'm a hundred percent that an American athlete will do something. I, I think that that's probably a guarantee. And that's just because there are so many athletes there who feel very confident. Um, they feel like they were engaged by their national Olympic committee. They were heard. Um, there's a really clear process for what is and isn't allowed, which I think is something that I don't know why the IOC couldn't do that. The USOPC did it with a racial and social justice committee. Um, so it's very clear if you're an American athlete, what the rules are to an extent. Um, so we will see athletes from America do this. Um, and so I'm excited to see what happens because I'm really, I'm, I would be so proud of them for them exercising their human rights. And I hope we see athletes from other countries doing it. There are people out there 
who want to help you. So, you know, obviously is a huge decision and it's up to every individual athlete. You know, it's also, you know, it might forget, you know, like in the heat of the moment, you, you might have planned something and then you get up there and you just like the tears are falling and, and that's amazing, you know, and that's an amazing expression of like the culmination of a life's journey. So um, I just want people to live their, their best lives and um, be their true self and any way that we can support them, we will. And Donna, I suppose last word to you on this. What, what do you think we might see and, and what do you hope will happen? Um, well, I, I, I would echo what Nikki and Cara have said. I think we will see the, some demonstrations or expressions of people's views. I'm totally expecting that. I, I really hope, as Nikki says, that people from other countries will, will do it as well. If, if they feel that that's the right thing to do, to express their views on a, on a particular issue, um, so I'm expecting the rule to be tested by the IOC and, and perhaps by other governing bodies, international governing bodies. But I'm hoping that they'll take a sensible approach to that and, and um, you know, consider their obligations under human rights law when, when doing so. Absolutely. Well, I think one thing's for sure is that the, the sports legal community will be watching on with, with great interest. Well, that's probably all we have time for today. Thank you very much, Nikki and Cara, for, for giving us your time and, and for such an interesting discussion. If there are any athletes who, who are concerned by Rule 50 and, and its impact on the upcoming Olympics, then please do feel free to reach out to us at Morgan Sports Law or to Cara at Global Athlete or Nikki. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our earlier episode on Rule 50 with Brendan Schwab and Tiana Bartoletta. For information about Morgan Sports Law and for articles about athletes' rights issues, please visit www.morgansl.com. And if you'd like to join our mailing list or if there are any topics you'd like to suggest for a future episode, please email us at podcast at morgansl.com. And finally, please do connect with us on social media at Morgan Sports Law on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook for articles, updates and news. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again soon.